Acts, if you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me. We're going to focus on chapter 27 today. We're going to look at a large portion of Scripture, Acts 25, 26, 27, and 28, but concentrate for the most part, for the bulk of our time, in chapter 27. It is the last time we meet together in 2013. I love New Year's. I know I told you I love Easter. I love Easter. I love Christmas. I do love Christmas. I love, I honestly, I think there is such merit and such worth to the end of one year pausing. Okay. Um, Craig, thank you. You gave me an extra 10 minutes. We can just pause on 2013, kind of wrestle with that. What did we do? What did we eat? How many times have we slept in the past couple days? And then we anticipate everything that takes place for 2014. I think it is an absolutely invaluable time. And Bill, I appreciate your special music. And I, I, I can agree with you that there needs to be more question marks at the ends of our statements with what you have for us, Lord, as opposed to what I am planning we get ourselves constantly, constantly into trouble. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, about the importance of being in the center of God's will as we are commencing another year. Um, in light of the fact that there are um, always, not, not any, any more in 2014 than in 2013 or 2015 or whatever, but there are always going to be, as we'll see from the book of Acts today, storms that we are going to be living in, having to move through and sail through. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we prevent ourselves from creating storms? Okay, And how do we just have trust and faith and confidence in God um, as he allows us to sail through difficult times? Um, I am the ultimate, I am the, the most optimistic optimist you will ever, ever meet and I am honestly convinced that 2014 is a year that we need to be prayed up together as a church. Um, everyone that I'm talking to, I'm challenging them. We have got to be committed to prayer as we enter 2014. I know that we're kind of just, just quiet this morning. We're kind of like full on stomachs. We've been sleeping a lot, laying around. All right, enjoy that, okay? Enjoy that because we can't stay in a state of just kind of like vacation, Christmas vacation, we have got to be about what God has called us to do, what God has called us to accomplish. Let me pray, and then I want to kind of stretch this text a little bit um, by way of application for you and I uh, today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you, Lord, for your love for us, and I thank you for your word. Your word, Lord, that it says is quick and powerful. Your word that we hold in our laps today, that we have the privilege of, of opening up, of reading it, of studying it, um, is quick and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, it, it divides, it, it discerns the difference between our soul and our spirit. We, we still have a hard time defining the two, separating the two, and yet your word speaks to us in that manner. We thank you for that. I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of, of having um, this, this body of believers together on this morning in your house. 
I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in every single word that is spoken. I pray for this community, many, many that are lost, um, Lord, that do not know you. I thank you for the message of the gospel that you have given to us. And I would ask, Lord, that you would empower us, that you would enable us, that you would equip us to communicate with great clarity the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for other churches that are preaching the gospel in this community. I pray, Lord, that we would be of one voice and that you ultimately would be glorified. Father, just lead us now, direct us. Um, May you be pleased and may you um, quicken us as we prepare for 2014 and the blessings that are in store and the challenges that are in store. We ask these things in the strong name of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. I want you to pause for a moment. You can even write some of these down. By the way, the important questions to ask yourself at the end of 2013 as we embark on 2014. What have you learned over the past year? Um, what lessons has God allowed you to be confronted with? Um, how has your life changed from one year ago? I think it's important to pause on that. Who is it, literally by name, who is it that you have impacted this year? Lord willing, in a positive way, we've really emphasized that big was the importance of discipleship. Who is it specifically that you can point to and said, I have, by God's grace, attempted to pour into the life of this individual? Who is it? If you can't come up with a name, a, raise, there's a problem right there, okay? Um, what mistakes? Every single one of us have made mistakes, have made poor decisions. It's okay to make a mistake one time, but we don't want to continually making the same mistakes over and over and over again. What, what will you do differently in 2014 than you did in 2013? These are all very, very important, very valid questions to ask. And ultimately, by way of questions, how, how has it that God has been glorified through your life? How is it that God has been glorified? That is the ultimate reason for our existence. That is the purpose that we live. Not to make money, not to get degrees, uh, not to win friends and influence people or buy junk and toys or eat great Our purpose is to glorify God. How have you done that? How has the Lord Jesus Christ been magnified in in your life and through your life? I know that sometimes it's tough to ask these questions, but it is an absolutely perfect time. In light of the fact that as we look at in, in this text that Paul will endure, that there are going to be storms now, I found as well, and I just want to speak candidly from my heart this morning, there's, there's storms that we, in a sense, choose. Because of our own foolishness, we create storms around us. And I'm not necessarily talking about that, although God is constant in, in all storms. But then there's other ones that God actually plans for us to be moving through. I think of a time that I was young and foolish. I'm still relatively Young and still relatively foolish, but I'm learning. I'm growing slowly wise. And I remember I was in college with a couple buddies, Gus Augustino and Steve Lane. And 
And we were all dating our, our girlfriends. Every one of them uh, are now our wives. And so we were kids. And how else to impress your, your girlfriend? Uh, but we decided, we had heard on the news that there was a huge hurricane that was coming. And if I recall, I did not go back to search specifically. I believe it was Hurricane Diana. This is back in the late 80s. We all had great hair back then. And we decided, all six of us were going to be going to the beach. It was Rehoboth Beach. Some of you have been there and visited. They have great surf. And we knew because of the waves, we were going to have the greatest surf. We decided we are going to go on this surfing excursion. How else to impress the ladies than to see us in the very fiercest, the roughest, and the worst of waves? And so that's exactly what we did. And I remember, as soon as we got out there, as soon as we got out there, we got out, we knew... This was a really, really, really dumb idea. Everything that could go wrong, could, could, that could possibly go wrong, went wrong. Don't ever go, don't, when you see a storm out there, don't go running out into it. Okay, don't go paddling out with your surfboard saying, hey honey, watch me, watch this. And it all came to reality as I was one particular time caught by a wave and I was upended and literally, as you're churning and you can't see, you don't know what's up and what's down. I remember having literally my head just driven into the sand. And, and, and I, I actually came up. My head was bleeding and my teeth were cracked. I found out later uh, from a car, I had fractured two vertebrae in my neck, like really serious injury. And I chose to do that. I chose to run out there. Now, we have... I have to understand it. There are going to be difficult times. And we will look at a fierce time that Paul has to go through. But there's a difference between us in our own foolishness creating storms and what God has called us to sail through. Let's kind of just let's recap a little bit. It's been a couple of weeks, Christmas, a lot of food, a lot of activity. Last time we were together in the book of Acts, we have seen Paul who's been arrested and threatened, okay? Really, people are completely perplexed with what to do with this Apostle Paul. The Jews really just wanted him dead. They claimed that he had violated temple worship. He had not. He had, a, he had every right to be there. He was, a, he was a Jew, and so he had the right to, to worship. They just didn't like really the message that he was communicating. The Romans had wanted to, to beat him, but, but if you remember, he was stretched out literally to be whipped, and he turns around and he says, well, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. He really can't beat me until I'm tried. And so they didn't really know what to do. And last time we left him, he, he was left simply, it says, Felix left him in prison. He was, just, he was just locked up. He was saying, let's just put him away. Let's throw away the key. Now, throughout the book of Acts, there has been a ton of, of motion. As we kind of conclude this book, it's the very last Sunday of this year, we think about this entire book as far as what has happened, the birth of the church, our history. This is our history. What has happened? There have been revivals and rescues and riots. There's been great preaching. There's been prayer meetings. And yet people have suffered pain and persecution. Individuals like Stephen have been stoned. There have been assassination attempts and martyrdom like James. There's been courtroom drama. There's been healing and exorcism and escapes. There's been all of this motion in the midst of this, this last, last several chapters, this key character, Paul, he, he literally is thrust into the worst storm possible. 
Now, in chapters 25 and 26, we're not going to spend a lot of time in, as I told you, because there's, there's similarities to him standing before Felix. He stands later before Festus, before Agrippa, before Bernice, all Romans' authority. And basically, he says exactly the same thing. Every single time he comes to someone who's in authority, why are you here? And Paul just shares his testimony, just like he does in Acts chapter 22, when he does before the Corinthians, before the Athenians, before the Ephesians. He says the same thing. He speaks about his conversion, his call, his purpose in life, same purpose that you and I have to glorify God's. He talks about the passion that God has given to him, and ultimately it's encapsulated in one single message. It's always the message of the gospel. How is Jesus Christ? magnified through my life, my words, and my ministry. Same message in Acts 25 and 26. He appeals to Caesar, the very, very highest, and he is actually granted an appeal. And so what happens is that he has to go to Caesar. Now, because he's a prisoner, in a sense, he has to be brought to Caesar. And so we'll see that he's in this journey making his way to Rome, because he has appealed and has been granted um, a, 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 a time, a session with the very highest. Now, you'll understand here that you think it was tough before for Paul. We get a little bit of a glimpse that this is not going to be easy. It doesn't ever seem to be easy for Paul. Same way that some of you are sitting here this morning and say, how come it's so much easier for that guy over there or that person back there? How come it's easy for everyone else but me? You ever say that? Exact same story with Paul. Let's pick it up in 27. And when it was decided, verse 1, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and he gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from where we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. I want us to pause on that. Think for a moment. Paul set sail as a prisoner, chained in a sense, has some liberties to move making his way to Rome, and we will see that ultimately Paul is still in the center of God's will throughout all of this time. That's what we're pursuing. We want to make sure that we are aligned with God's perfect will for our life. What happens to Paul? We'll see first and foremost that a storm begins to brew. A storm worsens every single moment. Here it is. He is appealed. He has been granted. He is, in a sense, put under the authority of a gentleman whose name is Julius. He's a member of the very distinguished Augustan Regiment, which is one of the higher-up Roman legions. And he's treated by Paul very graciously, or, or he treats Paul very graciously, very kindly. Now notice as well the interesting use of the pronoun us and we, Luke is writing the book of Acts. Luke is also there, first-hand eyewitness. So Luke is there as part of this. Aristarchus is there, another faithful kind of follower of Jesus Christ. He's always behind the scenes, but he's always there. And then there's this whole group, which we'll see later on, large group 
of prisoners. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly that are on this ship that are heading out, and things are what? Getting bad. Now, I don't know if you've ever done much sailing before. Some of you may have. I have very, very, very limited exposure to sailing, having grown up around the seacoast in Nova Scotia. We sailed a little bit, but not much. But you will realize that wind plays a major, major role, especially in ancient maritime travel or ancient maritime sailing. With the prevailing winds from the west, if you were going the opposite direction from Rome to the Middle East, or Rome towards Egypt, it was about a 10-day journey. Now, the opposite direction, if the winds are against you, it could be anywhere from two to three months of a journey. Ten days one way, if things are cool, the opposite way, it's going to take a long time. That's exactly what happens. Not only that, by way of the direction, but it says in verse 4, the winds were against us. By way of a specific more detail, later on they get to a, 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 a harbor called Lycia, and because the sailing is so rough, they actually traded in for a bigger ship. Um, the, the gentleman who is in charge of the whole scene here, Julius, finds a ship in verse 7, and it talks about the fact that they switched to a larger one. Excuse me, and then 7, we sailed slowly, arrived in a great difficulty off of Nidus because the wind did not allow us to go further. In verse 10, you have an interesting scene as well where Paul begins to say, while they're harbored for a moment, he says very, very clearly, I would suggest that we stay still for a while. He says this specifically, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, and not only of the cargo and of the ship, but of our lives. Paul knows, although it's already been tough sailing, the winds are against us, he knows this is going to get a lot worse. Needless to say, they don't listen to Paul. Okay, they set off, and it comes to the point where it's actually described that we were violently tossed. Um, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor, they sailed along Crete close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. Verse 15, when the ship was caught, could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of the small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boats. Just a lot of detail throughout 27 as far as what's happening here. It continually gets worse and worse and worse. Begin to come up with a plan that says, well, let's, let's dump some of the cargo. Let's lighten the ship. If we lighten the ship, we create more buoyancy. And so that's exactly what they do. They start to dump some of the tackle, sailing supplies. I'm assuming that's extra ropes, uh, extra sails, perhaps even some food. By the time they get to verse 20, it continues to worsen. It says that no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I don't know if you've been in a, a literal storm or not, in a sailboat, bouncing around, tossing, or whether or not you've been through some of the storms of everyday life, that, that, that literally you come to a place. Think about this. 
where all hope has been abandoned. We're literally like, God, I am completely in your hands. It is at this time that God very clearly speaks to Paul. Pick it up in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Well, what was it that I have been told? Paul now has been told at least on two separate occasions. Right here, you will stand before Caesar. And then previously, back a couple weeks ago, Acts chapter 23, if you remember, he was locked in a prison cell. And it says what? The Lord stood by him in verse 11. The Lord actually stood by him and said, Take courage, as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you will in Rome. So we understand here, ultimately, in the midst of this storm, Paul has this clear understanding. Ultimately, God's will is going to be accomplished. I remember being tossed in the surf, upside down. And eventually, what you know, there are certain things we always know in a storm. Although it might take us a while, we may feel somewhat disoriented. We know ultimately that what? There is, there is sand down there and there is sky up there. There's water in between, but we know certain things. Exactly what happens with Paul right here. He knows everyone's going to make it out alive. God has given him clarity on that. Matter of fact, he even says, why don't we all just pause right now? We're actually going to eat something so that we are prepared for what may come ahead. Well, what comes ahead? A storm worsens. The ship actually wrecks. Verse 39. <coughs> excuse me. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed <coughs> excuse me, a bay with a beach on it. So they're kind of drifting. Excuse me. <coughs> they're kind of drifting. They come upon some place which they don't really know. They cast off the anchors and they left him in the sea. They cast off the anchors, left him in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that they were all brought safely to land. Some of the details here earlier, it's been about 14 days. 14 days, they're just kind of tossed in this storm. Since they'd actually left Fair Havens. They're drifting aimlessly throughout the, the Adriatic Sea. And they take proper measures. What happens is that they were beginning to, to, to come to a place where the water was getting more and more shallow. 
And so they measure it, and they drop anchor, thinking we're going to hit the rocks anyway, so we have to secure it. They actually mentioned very specifically, they dropped four different anchors. Well, they realize this is not going to work, so they cut the anchors, and as soon as they cut the anchors, they still drift, and they come aground upon a sandbar. So they're still paused. It actually says that the bow stuck, remained immovable, and the stern was being busted apart by the surf. So what is it now? Okay, let's just kill the bad guys. Let's kill the prisoners. No, let's not do that because this guy tells us we're going to be safe. Well, then let's just jump overboard. It's the plan in the middle of this chaos that's really like the ultimate of just survival. If you can swim, swim. Great instruction in the middle of a storm. If not, I would find something that's floating and hold on tightly to that. Sometimes there's instruction that people give to us that, well, thank you, I appreciate that, but I pretty much have this covered on my own. I can make one of those two decisions. We see ultimately the storm worsens, the ship wrecks, but ultimately, and it says very specifically, 276 souls are on board. And out of the 276 souls are on board, 276 people make it safely to land. Amazing to see. But yet, oddly enough, the storm, so to speak, in Paul's life, is still not over. There's actually, in the verse nine, verse 9 verses of 28, that on top of that, in, in almost adding insult to injury, there's a poisonous snake that now enters this scene. It says very clearly in verse 3 that Paul's gathering some sticks to build a fire, he builds the fire, and because of the heat, the, the serpent, a poisonous snake, a serpent comes out, bites him on the hand. It literally says it fastens um, onto Paul's hands. There's like fangs in the flesh of a man's hand. It just goes from bad to worse. I don't know about you, but I kind of thought shipwreck or snake bite. Shipwreck. I would still probably take the shipwreck over the snake bite personally. Either way, this is a really bad scene. And yet what's interesting is that Paul has clearly been given indication, you will make it to Rome. You will make it to Rome. You will be before Caesar. The snake, in a sense, is just that. It bites him, he shakes it off, and he is untouched by this. He is unharmed by this. I've read one commentary this week. John Phillips describes it like this. Paul knew himself to be in God's hands. For God had already given him safe conduct in Rome. No power on earth nor in hell could reverse his decree. The venomous serpent could not harm him. He was immortal until his work was done. Now, of course, the people who are watching this on the island of Malta are absolutely fascinated. Who is this one? He was bitten and now he appears to be fine. Is he a god? Obviously, Paul is just a man, but he what? He's a man on a mission. He is God's man at God's hour accomplishing God's task. And we see ultimately a secure arrival. The people are on Malta. They show him unusual kindness. They actually provide for them whatever that is needed. They stay on this little island for three months. After three months, there's another ship eventually that takes them. And believe it or not, there is safe passage after several stops to Rome. When they get to Rome, the entire book ends. It says that Paul stays there for two years. He proclaims the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus 
with all boldness and without hindrance. Think about it. There's a storm, there's a shipwreck, there's a snake bite, there's this safe, secure arrival, and he ends up in Rome without any hindrance at all. As a matter of fact, this is not the end of Paul's life. He is released. He goes on and he ministers in Ephesus, several different places, continues to write before he is later arrested and executed ultimately under Nero's rule. The the, the odd part to this is, is what do we do with this story? There's almost an entire chapter on all the, the details of sailing, the lee winds, and this harbor, and then the ships, and then throw this off and snake. There's this massive story. What do, we, what do we do with this text? How do we apply this? And why is there so much detail to this? That's really what I want to pause on. The danger that happens when we read a narrative like this is to allegorize it or, or find things that you read into the text. There's something that, that we would refer to in, in, in pastor's circles. It's very, very dangerous where pastors would sermonize this text. Where they actually try to, to take things out of the text that really aren't there. And I heard a message actually one time on this where it talks about the fact that when there's storms of life that we need to throw out the four anchors that God has given to us, the, the anchor of Scripture and the anchor of prayer and the anchor of something. And I think that's, that's nowhere in here. What is in the text? It says that they threw out four anchors. Well, what does that mean? It means they threw out four big hunks of metal to try to slow the ship down. That's what it means. So we have to look at this very literally and we have to examine exactly what is happening here. Big picture. Paul is what? Just like he, just like when you're in a surf toss, there is sand down there and there is sky up there. We know that. In the midst of all of this storm, why this text? We understand, well, okay, what do we know for certain? There is a man called Paul and he is a child of God. Just like you, if you have acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you belong to him. We know that. As 2013 wraps up, 2014 commences, okay, we know certain things. God loves me. God cares for me. I am his own child. What else do we know from this? God has called Paul to go to a specific place and do a specific job. Just like you and I. Okay, as you maneuver through life, there's going to be winds that blow and storms and waves and there's all kinds... You are called to a specific purpose. You have a specific task to accomplish, a job to do. What else do we know from this? We know that God assured Paul, I will be there for you regardless of any and all storms, regardless of what the size of the ship, which we're told, regardless of the direction that the wind blows. Regardless of the the skill of the sailors who are in charge of the ship, regardless of the strength of the soldiers who chain you to its deck, regardless of the height of the waves, regardless of the, 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 the type of serpent that bites you, regardless of any and all that. What we grab from this, what we take from this is that that when we are in a relationship with God personally, he does not cause us to be exempt from any hardship. Being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ does not assure you that you're never going to go through a storm. 
As a matter of fact, I would prepare for the exact opposite. Being a child of God means what? That in the midst of the storm, there is absolute assurance. There is absolute assurance. Regardless of what comes in 2014, there is absolute assurance that when you surrender to the Lord in His will, then you have absolutely nothing to worry about. Some helpful practical points of application are very simply what Christians are going to experience storms just like everyone else. Know that. We see that in this text. Christians, what, can experience and even rejoice in the hope that when a storm blows into our lives, we're okay with that because we know the one who makes the storms. We learn that. We learn just like Paul actually pauses and encourages others and says, you know what? It's going to be fine. Matter of fact, have something to eat to strengthen you for what's going to come. Do you realize that you and I, just like Paul, can be useful and encouraging and helpful to other people in the midst of a storm? We see that in this text. And we see ultimately what's what, that there is a journey that's going on here. There's, there's one man that is moving from point A to point B in complete fulfillment of God's perfect will. He is in the center of God's will. Now you'll see what, first and foremost, that, that Paul experiences these horrible things. I mean, in all honesty, every single one of them are horrible. What I want to remind you of this morning, what I want you to hear is at the center of God's will, you will see what? Regardless of the storms of life, it is the absolute safest place. It is the safest place that you will be. I appreciate that Craig just led us to to Hebrews chapter 13, right before the message. Let me remind you what it says in Hebrews chapter 13. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why? So you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. I think if there's a message that needs to to resonate at the end of one year and the beginning of the next, it is that message. In the center of God's will, I will not be afraid. People are paralyzed. I don't know what this next year is going to be. It's just, it's just not looking real good. It's really dicey out there. It's really, really scary. It's really, really bad time to be a Christian. I heard the Duck Dynasty is under attack now. It's really hard. Hey, in the center of God's will, it is the safest place. Matthew chapter 6, in verse 26, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking and he says this, and I quote, Do not be anxious. Or what? Do not worry. What does Jesus say? He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, but yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And I love this. I love this phrase. Are you not of more value than they are? So there's literally something that we can do in this moment of uncertainty. It's really looking dark. It's, there's waves out there and the wind's blowing. Find Look at the birds. They're surviving. Does the Lord not look after them? How much more important are you 
created in the very image of God and called for a specific purpose to glorify Him. How much more important, how much more value are you? So God sees you. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 28. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will He clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Realize that when we live in moments of panic and worry, we're actually sinning against the holy God. We are paralyzed with, well, we don't know what happens next. I can't, I'm not sleeping really well here, and I need something to help me to just kind of settle down here because it's really looking bad. Do you realize that's actually sin because it chides us? Jesus Christ is speaking and he says, Oh, you of little faith, do you not know who your father is? And so we need to be reminded of that. As 2014 awaits, it's, it's, it's what? It's a couple days away. As 2014 awaits, so do you. But you are to wait upon the Lord's. You are to wait upon His timing. You wait for His conversation and His action. And you have to know this. You have to know that it has been described that, that the center of God's will, as long as we are surrendered to His will, Lord, whatever you want, it is the safest place to be. But I leave you with this thought. Secondly and lastly, it is the most dangerous place for you to be. The very center of God's will, not only is the safest place for you to be, but it's also the most dangerous place for you to be. Why? Because in the center of God's will aligns you with the gospel. And you communicate the message of the gospel, and you will very, very quickly see that it is a dangerous, and and frankly, it is a disturbing message. And it will constantly put you on a crash course with others who are unsettled by this message, who are uncomfortable by this message, who hear the message of Jesus Christ that begins with what? A holy God, and you are not Him. The gospel that resonates with the fact that we are lost and broken and sinners, and that doesn't sell well in today's world, and that will irritate people. And it will also expose the hearts of people that are far from God's. Erwin McManus says it like this, The truth of the matter is that the center of God's will is not a safe place, but the most dangerous place in the world. To live outside of God's will puts us in danger. To live in His will makes us dangerous. I don't agree with everything that McManus says, but I have to agree with that. Which means what? We must pray every day, literally every single day. As you begin to sketch out or chart whatever, whatever system you use, you, 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 you put away one day timer and you take out another one as we all do this week and we begin to chart out every single day you pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What do we say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which means what? Lords, we know that the course has already been charted. Let 
your will be done here on earth the way that is already established in heaven. It's already, it is, the die has already been cast. It has been set. Lord, may we align with your will every day. And it talks about surrender and submission. Every single day we pray, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did, Lord, not my will. This is really going to hurt. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's face down. And he's in tears. And he's in agonos. And he prays. He says, Lord, please remove this from me. I don't want this. That storm looks horrible. But what? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And so as we, as we close the door, as we, as we close the chapter of one year, and we begin another, May we understand just through this, this little story, a narrative of this massive storm, understand that we are safe in God's hands, in the center of His will. You are His. So we go out and we play with poisonous snakes and everything's fine. No, 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 please don't try that. So we go, well, we grab our surfboard and we head into a hurricane to impress those around us. No, that's just dumb and dangerous. We don't look for trouble. But when we understand the reality of it's not my will, but the Lord's will be done. Then regardless of what happens, we are safe. Because he has called us to be on task and on, on message with the gospel. And so, so I pray for you. Please pray for me through this upcoming year. I believe as a church, and I'll challenge each person next week as we, in a sense, talk about the future of where we're going. We have got to increase primarily, particularly in the area of prayer and be a praying church that advances on our knees for accomplishing what God has called us to do. So we, we need to be about that. So as you, as you make plans for this week to celebrate, wonderful, but after the balloons go flat and the food is eaten and reality sets in, it can be difficult, but you are safe as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering every day to His will and not your own. Do that. Be that. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Paul and his tenaciousness. Thank you, Lord, for the purpose that you gave to him that really aligns with the purpose that you've given to us. Help us to understand, Lord, that regardless of the winds that howl or the waves that beat against the side, Father, may, may we see us safe in your hands. Father, may we not cause harm and conflict. May we not go running into. But Father, when storms come, may we understand the importance of trusting you of knowing what your will is for our lives. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this body, for what you're doing in its midst, what you're doing in this community. Help us, Lord, in 2014 to be faithful followers of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.